open up to Romans chapter 1, which is where we'll be, and you can pull out uh, sermon notes as well. Looks like the snow kept some people away this morning, so we could pray for those who are uh, those Northern Californians I want to risk the icy roads and shovel their driveway to get out to their iced-over window. <clears throat> With great power comes great responsibility. Uh, if you live in a certain era, you remember when there was only one Spider-Man franchise movie. Now there's like 12, I think, different Spider-Mans. Um, but we know that that's from, uh, from good old Uncle Ben. And if you're a Weird Al fan, you note that uh, he points out you know, this phrase so many times in the series of movies that we kind of go, okay, Ben, we get it. Um, he kind of you know, says it in person, then he's flashback and whatnot. You know, this truth of great power and great responsibility is on display in Romans. And Spider-Man borrows from the great story and the great storyteller. Jesus said this in Luke 12, From everyone who has been given much, much will be required, and to whom they entrusted much, of him they will ask all the more. We're looking at the Jewish people this morning because that's where uh, that's where Paul is beginning to move his discussion and his lens as he talks through things. And the Jews knew they were special. They had been picked out as a nation when they were but two people, Abram and Sarah. And God calls them, and against all odds, here they were, still existing as a people. And not only got that, but God gave them the written law. Here is what I require from people. Here is how we are to live. And what did they do with the law? They broke it. They knowingly broke it. Because they had it, and they didn't fulfill it. Instead of getting insider treatment as God's specials, what did they get? They got what they deserved. They were held to a greater responsibility. If you want this morning's text in a handful of words, write this down. It's in your box. If you want to just jot this down, um, I hope you don't check out for the rest of the morning, but if you were to check out for the rest of the sermon, if you get what's in this box, you'll get the gist of this passage. That those who know better don't do better. Those who know better don't do better. I was, uh, I was driving on Tuesday, and I had a humbling picture of this come true in my life. It's a humbling example highlighting my ongoing sin nature and my ongoing need. I'm making a right from Cherry onto Branham, heading towards 85 near Camden. And I happen to be on the phone with my wife, using a headset, legal, and I make this comment. I see three people that are pulled over with some or motorcycle policemen parked on the opposite side of Branham. And here's what I said to my wife. I said, oh, there's a speed trap on Branham. I said, good, people really need to slow down. Remember those words. That's Tuesday. Thursday, I am coming home from a meeting that went exceedingly long. I am thinking through all that I have to do. It's raining, no less. And I am driving down Branham on that other side, coming back toward church in the afternoon. And I get right near that spot. And I immediately remember my conversation with my wife and the three poor saps that were pulled over because of the speed trap. And I looked down at my speedometer and I had hard, conclusive proof that I am a sinner. And it was measured in miles per hour. I was nine miles over the speed limit. It's 35 there. What's worse is when I hit the brakes, 
Here was the first thought I had. Not people should slow down and we should obey the rules and we should keep the children safe, but I don't want a ticket. That was my first thought. And as soon as I hit the brakes and I said, I don't want a ticket because I remembered the speed trap, I get through the light and I am flooded with a thought that I've been mulling over this week. Those who know better don't do better. And the very words that came out of my my mouth, not thought, but spoken to my wife two days earlier was this. People really need to slow down around here. Convicted. Guilty. Those who know better don't do better. The book of Acts shows the gospel somewhat like a runaway train. First there's Pentecost, and then you have Peter eating with a Gentile. And before you know it, there's this thing called the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. Here's what that's all about. God is breaking loose the gospel for all nations. In a very special and profound season of history, he is shaking it free from the Jews. And at the Jerusalem Council, here's what they decided. They decided that believing in and being found in and trusting and being a disciple of Jesus Christ is more It's more than your ethnicity. It's more than your past traditions. It's more than all of this other stuff. That's what counts. And here's what happened with the Jews. The Jews received the gospel first to be a blessing for the nations. Over and over in the the book of Acts, we see this. To the Jew first and then the Gentile. We'll see that in Romans. To the Jew first and then Gentile. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. The Jew first, the Jews read it this way, Jew first means Jews are best and for the Jews only. That's how they read it. And you read the book of Acts. The book of Acts is God shaking that free and saying, no, this is always meant to be a blessing for the nations. Are you excited that the gospel is a blessing for all nations? I am, because I'm not Jewish. So I, I, my history... How the gospel got to me and my people is God's working and breaking it free and setting it free, not just for the Jews, but to the Jew first and then for the Gentile. We see pride and prejudice and patience in all of this, and I'll walk us through the text here. We've been in a series called Colossal Truth, and what Colossal Truth is looking at is the most important letter in all of history, the letter to the Romans. And we're in this opening section that just describes the ruin that mankind finds itself in. And it's not just in ages past that people are ruined. It's in our current, present, techno-wealthy world that we live in here. Last week, by way of review, we looked at those who lived life sort of by the outback mentality, which is no rules, just right. Have you heard that from Outback? That's sort of how, how people live. Some people just live their life that way. And Paul talked about people who were gifted some things from God, marriage and knowledge and, and worship. And they took those things and they willingly participated in an exchange for a fake. One of the most tragic portions of Scripture. Today, what Paul's going to do is he's going to spotlight those who are morally superior, or at least those who think that they're morally superior. Look in your Bibles for a minute 
And look at the end of chapter 1, and then look at the beginning of chapter 2, and look for this. He moves from there, they, them, and then in chapter 2, starting in verse 1, he begins to say you and yourself. Here's what he's doing. He's talking about them out there, and then he calls the reader to personal responsibility, moving from the third pronoun to the second pronoun, saying this, you. So he gets people nodding. He gets the morally superior people nodding, saying, yeah, those people are rotten for exchanging those things and living their life as if there's no God. And right as he has them nodding along, Paul turns the lens right on them, and he says, you. Listen for it in Romans Chapter 2, verse 1. Let me get there. I always tell you guys to go places, and then I don't go. Here we go. Romans chapter 2, starting in verse 1. We're just going to look at five verses this morning. Therefore you, there's a pronoun switch. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God is meant to to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and in penitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of, of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. We know from Scripture, and we know intuitively, that leadership power and privilege are given to people, are bestowed on people as a means of being a blessing to those that they serve. I say that that's written on our hearts because non-Christians, as you'll see in a moment, have that same sentiment. Where did we see this lived out in its fullest form? We saw it lived out in its fullest form when King Jesus, the rightful King of Kings, came and didn't serve himself with his power, but gave up his power, gave up his privilege to become a servant of all. People around the world in every language will sing about this in this season of Advent. That this King of Kings came to serve. It's not difficult to look around at horrible abuses of power. And it's not just Christians who've been given the scriptures about what leadership should look like that are up in arms about it. This is written into our heart. Leadership and privilege are meant to serve others not pad your own bank accounts. Let me give you two recent examples. Wall Street and politics. Wall Street, people had insider information, insider trading. They were using the trust that was given to them, here, invest my money, and they were using it to benefit their own selves and get themselves fat. Politics. Um, what was Trump's thing about clearing out the swamp? I don't know. I didn't catch the exact phrase. Drain the swamp. That carried a lot of traction with people. That isn't some outlandish idea. It's like no idea what he's talking about. People say drain the swamp because they say politics is riddled with you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. We'll use our power and our privilege to do things to serve us 
rather than those who have entrusted us with the power. And you know what happens when people are exposed for taking their power, misusing it, and using it for privilege and serving themselves? People cry, foul, boo, of every spiritual religious stripe. We all have the same instinct. That power and privilege were meant to serve those who are around them, not themselves. There's sort of two kinds of sins that are looked at in chapter 1 and chapter 2. Chapter 1, Paul lays out what we might look at as overt and unacceptable sins, at least unacceptable in polite society. There's also covert and acceptable sins. Hear me. These don't really exist. There aren't acceptable sins. There are acceptable sins for us fallen judges of man, but there aren't acceptable sins with God who sees and knows all. As he lays out chapter 1 and chapter 2, he's laying out two different kinds of sins, but here's the point from last week that you need to remember. The specific sins vary. The names that we call these sins are all over the map, and some we talk about a ton as gross misconducts of how God designed things, and some we cover up and barely mention, but here's the point. Everyone is laid bare in the same degree of lostness. We are laid bare together in our degree of ruin. If you read these two kinds of sins in light of the Sermon on the Mount, we might call them sins of the flesh and sins of the spirit. It really highlights some things. Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Jesus is preaching, probably his most famous, most quoted sermon. And over and over again in that sermon, do you remember he says this? He says, you have heard it said to you, but I say to you. You have heard it said to you, and then he'll say some things, but I say to you. You know what he was doing? He was saying this, the boundaries and limitations that you think exist are all wrong. What you keep looking at is the external boundaries, and you say, as long as we don't go outside of this square, we're good. Jesus comes along and says, you've heard it said this. Here's what I say to you. As you even begin to think about that, when your motives are off, what you're thinking about, that lays bare before God too. You're held accountable for your inner thoughts and motives, not just your outward actions. Not only is it things that we're held accountable for, but the possibilities are blown apart. We can love our enemy, not just our neighbor. And Jesus, of course, modeled these things. 2 Corinthians 7.1, I believe it's in your notes, so just you don't need to jot it down, but it says this, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement. Listen for these two kinds of sins, of body and spirit. Because we have these promises, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement, both the body and the spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. One of the verses that jumps out from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, specifically to our text, is this, Matthew chapter 7, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounced, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. 
So Jews then, and the morally superior people of today, are blinded by a word called pride. If you're filling out notes, there's, uh, there's just some, some space for you to, to jot some thoughts down here. Here's the not-so-flattering list of people sort of in the scope of Paul's rendering here in chapter 2. Judgmental, hypocritical, self-righteous, presumptuous, with hard and unrepentant hearts. That's how he views people in chapter 2. You know, Jesus worked so hard to expose and eradicate this exact kind of attitude when he was here on earth. Remember he saved his harshest criticism for people in this camp? Most of the times it was the Pharisees and Sadducees, those who were supposed to be the shepherds of God's people that were protecting and feeding themselves while leaving the sheep exposed and underfed. And Jesus railed against this. His reply to proud people as they would come and proclaim their self-righteousness was always law. He always gave them law. Remember last week, I'm basically good. Are you a good person? So many times people begin to begin to kind of give their resume. I'm basically good. And Jesus would give law. You know why? The law was always meant to steer you toward your need. And if you have pride, so long as you have pride, it prevents you from getting what you need most. Remember broccoli from, uh, from last week? Broccoli represents the gospel, the saving knowledge of the gospel. It may not taste the greatest in the moment, but that's what you need. And until you recognize your need for it, man, you might steer clear of it. When you see the law, the law was always meant to be a school teacher, a tutor, to lead you and show you and show your incredible need for a Savior that you can't live up on your own. But we're immune from eating it because we don't think we need it if we say, we're good. How are you doing? I'm good. If we think we're good, we never pursue what we need most. So pride blinds and then it kills. James 4, 6 says this, God opposes the proud. What does he do for the humble? He gives grace. Man, I, I hope this settles into our hearts. I hope we're not listening to this message for someone out there, someone in our you know, family that we're about to share Christmas with, uh, someone sitting near us that really needs to hear this message. Hear me, friends. God opposes the proud. You want to talk about being on the wrong side. You don't want to be opposed by God. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Jesus opens the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are bankrupt and see their spiritual bankruptcy, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. His argument is for those who set themselves up as judges. You judge people for actions, then you do them yourselves. Do you hear it? You know better, but you don't do any better. You've set yourself up as the judge. You're prideful. Last week we saw that self-deception leads to self-indulgence. This week we see that self-deception also leads to self-righteousness. The second thing we see is prejudice. The self-righteous live in a bit of a fantasy world. 
Prejudice, my mind typically jumps because of where culture always talks about prejudice, is discrimination. It's dislike or hatred for a certain group of people. But there's a second meaning. Here's the second meaning. Preconceived opinion that is not based on reason or reality. That opens the topic way more than just racial or discrimination in, in some other category like that. Oh, but I feel confident in my opinion. You know what confidence is? Confidence is the feeling you have before you understand the situation. Bathed in pride, the self-righteous people who were nodding along with Paul misjudged. They dished out judgment all over the place to people in their midst. They had the law and they knew it and they leveled it against others, but they weren't any better off. Jewish history is riddled with a false sense of security. And when it says God opposes the proud, then just read your Old Testament. When you read the Old Testament, you see cycles of pride, God opposing that out of love and kindness and graciousness, and it's tough love. And then a humbling and a repentance, and then a loop back to worship God, and then what happens? Remember this cycle in Judges over and over and over again? Pride, self-reliance, self-righteousness. And then opposition, and the cycle would begin again. You know, the Jews had more than general revelation. We looked at this last week. They saw God move in their midst. Yearly, they would celebrate festivals, reminding them of how God had moved in their midst. God told them, set up these pillars so that when future generations ask, what are these rocks talking about? You can remind them of how God moved in special, powerful, supernatural ways. And beyond all that, they were given the law. They were given the written word of God to say, here is how to live and move and act and relate and hold commerce and, and, and have your being. And yet they were no better off. They knew better. They didn't do any better. This false security and heaping up of wrath is a little bit like these phrases we have sort of in our modern vernacular. It's the pot calling the kettle black. Have you heard of that before? It's this idea that when you're pointing the finger at someone, how many fingers are pointing back at you? Three of them, right? And there's a thumb that we don't know what to do with. But, but in the saying, right, there's one pointing, there's three coming, coming back at you. This wasn't new. Jewish history was filled with these pesky prophets that kept coming along, kind of telling them what was up. Isaiah chapter 3. The prophet Isaiah says this, Yes, Jerusalem is doomed. Judah is collapsing. Everything they say and do is against the Lord. They openly insult God himself. Now catch this. Their prejudices will be held against them. Their preconceived ideas that are not based on reality will be held against them. They sin as openly as the people of Sodom did. They are doomed, and they have brought it on themselves. Can you see the two camps of people from Romans chapter 1? Overt, unacceptable sins. Those people of Sodom. And then also chapter 2. Covert, acceptable to polite society sins. What is the prophet Isaiah saying? You are insulting God. 
Do you think any of that's hidden to God? None of it's acceptable, people. So Isaiah comes and, and pronounces calamity, pronounces the warning. In the category of it takes one to know one, Paul kind of reads the mail of his readers because he was in that camp before. Look at Philippians chapter 3. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. He's saying this. You want to be prideful about the things you're prideful in? Here's my resume. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. I kind of wonder if it was easy for Paul to just rattle this off, because in his previous life before Christ, this is what he did. You want to go against me? He's at, a, you know, he's at a conference, he's the speaker, this is his bio. This is what he would lead the conversation with. Why? Because this is where his confidence was. His righteousness was wrapped up in all of this. Look at the conclusion that he leads to, though. It goes on in verse 7, he says this, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. That's British for garbage. In order that I may gain Christ. What is this best thing that makes everything else second place for Paul? Here it is, verse 9. And being found in him... Not having a righteousness of my own. Let that sink in. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. For you poker players, Paul was all in, right? I am all in on the righteousness that's been revealed in Jesus Christ through the gospel. That's why I'm not ashamed of it. It's my only hope. And I trade in all this resume that I've so carefully and diligently worked toward, and it means nothing to me now in favor of having a righteousness from Christ. Here's what Paul does. He lists sins that sort of lay us bare because he just lists all these things. Go, go reread the 24 sins at the end of chapter 1 sometime this week. It's a devastating list. He just lists all these things that we go, yes, those things are despicable. May that never be said of me. I don't want any of that on my tombstone whatsoever. But then as he gets us nodding along in approval, saying, yes, those things are wicked. Those things hurt the heart of God. It's turned on us to say this, that our very own tisking fingers at other people, condemn us. I want you to imagine the shock if at your own trial, the prosecuting attorney, the one that is against you, decides to call one last witness to the stand that's going to 
sort of clinch the deal. And the person he calls to the stand is you. And in a court of law, all that's played is your own words. All that's played is all of the ought-tos that you've pronounced, that you've texted, that you've posted. All the things. And your own testimony, your own words and standards that you declared to others now come back, and that is the standard that is used to judge you. Like me driving on Branham this week on two different occasions, my own words came back to condemn and convict and seal the deal as guilty. Your own testimony is what would be fairly held up to you. And hear me, you, every one of you in this room, would be overwhelmed with guilt. The verdict would be sealed. It shows beyond the shadow of a doubt the word we looked at last week, conscience, with knowledge, that we do these things with knowledge. We cannot claim ignorance. Look at verse 4. Let's let this be a real question for today, not something that we're looking at detached in a classroom setting. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? If you look again at the list that I opened with, this list of sort of character traits that Paul's looking at in in Romans chapter 2, it sounds so similar to names that are cast on Christians today. Listen to them again. Judgmental. Hypocritical, self-righteous, presumptuous, hard, and impenitent hearts. Ever hear any of those attached to Christians? Now, we could sort of debate and chew on this a little bit as to why that's true. Some of that could be people just don't know real Christians. They know church-going people that call themselves Christians and act and live like sort of functioning um, deists, which just says, there is a God, but he's, I'm not accountable to him. He's not involved in my daily life. It could be because they're just not knowing any Christians, and they're sort of allowing things to influence and shape their mentality. It could be because they do know Christians. And these are some of the character traits that come flooding back to them over and over again. We need to be careful because this passage was very clearly written to a specific group of people in a certain location. So to make all of Romans 2 about us is kind of like kindergartners that just think the whole world revolves around them. That would be a a, a mistake. However, there's a warning for every person in this room. If you are in Christ this morning and you rest assured in the righteousness that's been credited to you in exchange for all of your sin, remember the great exchange last week, that you've handed that over and you've received Christ, I want to just give you a caution. I want you to rest assured, because that's a done deal. Your judgment day is in the past. And because Christ's resume has been credited to you, it's over and done with. But here's the warning, friends. Here's the caution. 
The temptation to presume on the kindness of our Savior is lurking still. Amen? So easy to take for granted God's grace. From the Old Testament to the church age, those with the most reason to honor and celebrate God often don't. We see this over and over and over, and it would be the pinnacle of pride to suggest that, well, we're somehow past that, and we're not in danger of being that. So I want to sort of close our time off by giving you three sort of anecdotal actions, anecdotes to this invading and poisoning your soul. And these aren't one-time things, but these are to be cultivated. These are to be um, stirred up and, and remembered. We've been looking at the end of each of our sermons of what we should do, and the first one I want to give you is to lament. One of the ways that you guard against being presumptuous and have a hard and impenitent heart is to lament. It means to weep and to wail. Do you know that tears and crying and solemn reflection have every place in the Christian worship service? It has for the people of God since they became the people of God. And it's our turn to carry that on. What I'm not talking about, when we looked at our Turbulence series, that was this summer, we looked at sort of more surfacey things. What, what I want to do is I want to draw your attention to the deep undercurrent of some things to lament about this morning. Yes, there's past failures and past violations that have happened against you. Present temptations, present prisons that hold you bound, the very things you don't want to do, you end up doing. And those good things you long to be about, you can't find yourself doing them. What those are pointing to is this ruin that's being talked about. I'm going to invite the band to come on up right now. This is a song that our guys wrote um, a while ago now. And it could have been written for this specific text. It's a song of lament. And I want you to join in. I want you to be led in a song of lament that came just sort of from our own community. My prayer for you would be this. My prayer for you would be that the lament, that the weeping would be over sin. There's and ours. To see sin from God's point of view, not just sins of the flesh that we can check off and kind of keep managed, but the sins of the heart, the sins of the mind, the sins of the ought to. Those are sins of omission, things that you're not doing that you know are good things. We don't weep as those who have no hope. Amen? That's great news. But if we just keep skipping always to the forgiveness, always to the cleansing, without pausing and saying, God, it hurts you when I take you for granted. It hurts you when I preconceive, move into sin, knowing that you'll forgive me on the other end. Free me of that. Rid me of that. Show me the stench of sin this morning. So as we sing, let your heart be led in these ways.